0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. If you need the scripture, if you have one in hand, or you can open the Bible app. If you're not sure about the Bible app, you can go to the link tree, and at the very bottom in the resources, you'll see John 3. Click on that, and it will take you to the Bible app, and uh, you can read along with me this morning from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Perhaps in our generation in the last 50 years, maybe since the um, work of Billy Graham, John 3.16 has become one of the most well-known verses of Scripture. Um, May this message not get old to us, simple though it may sound. Um, May its uh, profound nature truly impact and shape your life and mine. So this is a reading from John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The backdrop to this story is Jesus' experience with Nicodemus. In the night, they had a conversation Nicodemus found Jesus and told him right up front that everyone knows you're more than a teacher. You're more than a great teacher because of the things that you are doing. And Jesus cuts to the chase and tells him, truly I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, this astonished Nicodemus, who was at that moment thinking very literally and said, how is that possible? How could I be born again? In fact, Nicodemus at that point probably thought it impossible that he would crawl into the womb of his mother and be born again. This is such interesting language that Jesus uses. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, he just doubles down on the point. Truly, I tell you, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And so that born-rebirth experience, we're all familiar with that moment of creation where we are astonished at this little creature in the hands of a mother or father. And there's new life. There's the cry of life in that moment. And Jesus likens a spiritual rebirth of a person to be like that, that it's the work of the Spirit in a person who has flesh and bone, that somehow they would be born again. There would be some kind of spiritual work of God that would make it possible for them to be brought into the kingdom, even the family of God. Jesus goes on to point out that it seemed strange to him that Nicodemus didn't get it. He said, Nicodemus, you are one of the scholars of the Word of God, and yet you do not understand heavenly things. How would you understand them if you don't understand earthly things as well? And then Jesus goes on to explain how this new birth will be revealed. And he points back to a very strange event. Jesus says, surely I tell you, just as Moses raised the snake on a pole, the Son of Man will be raised on a pole, and all who look on him in belief shall be saved. Well, that was a strange moment, I'm sure, for Nicodemus as he tried to contemplate what does it mean for the Son of Man to be raised on a pole. For this was a strange event even in the history of Israel. In the history of Israel, they had had a season and time of complaint and rebellion against God. And in the judgment of their rebellion against God, Snakes came through their tents. Who would be freaked out with a snake in the tent? Yeah, I'd be freaked out too. They just weren't your average snake. They were poisonous snakes. And those who were bit were going to die. And they were dying. And so Moses inquired what to do. And God said, fashion a snake. Raise it on a pole and all who look on it shall be healed. They shall be saved. Weird, right? That's a weird moment. I'm sure Nicodemus at this point could not imagine that the Christ and Messiah of God would be killed on a cross, that he would be lifted up, and that all who put their faith in this one who was killed and wounded for them on a cross would live would have eternal life even for the readers of John's gospel this would have been a strange moment so john provides a commentary for why the son of man was raised up on a pole and wounded and killed He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John roots this vision of God's salvation as a vision of, Of love. God loves the world. So he gave his son. God loves not just Israel, not just your family, Nicodemus, not just the scholarly people of Israel, not just the faithful followers of the Torah in Israel, but God loves the world. And this was an important reading for all of us, that somehow God's family picture included people that I might not have included in my family picture. In fact, he would have said, let's take a picture And they would have just kept coming and coming and coming to get in the picture, the picture of God's grace, the picture of God's love, the picture of God's family, all those who had looked upon Jesus raised up on the cross, lifted up, and had believed in faith that what God was doing at the cross was an expression of his love for us for you and for me. You see, God, when he acted in love, this is something Nicodemus would know, that when God acted in love and with a vision of love, he accomplished it. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to cause you to be a family. I'm going to cause you to be a nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Nicodemus could have accepted very quickly that this covenant-making God makes covenants because he chooses to love a people, and he invites them into that covenant. This covenant-making God knew that covenant-making required a cost, and so in each covenant, God pays the cost making it. And in his grace, he invited people to enter into it and so become family with him, become united with him in his rule, code his kingdom. But when Isaiah wanted to speak about the covenant-making God, This is what Isaiah says of the servant who's coming. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is what the Messiah was to be. This is what God's gift of love was to be. He in himself would be the covenant. He would make this covenant through his own body. Thus, Jesus is the one raised up on a pole. God loves the world. And when we look on the cross, this should be one of the things we remember. God loves the world. And then strangely, we can confess, God loves loves me. I am loved. The movement towards making that confession of I am loved has to go through sometimes a very important passageway. Because John goes on in this commentary in John chapter 3. Notice what what he says in verse 17. For fear that their deeds will be exposed. What John doubles down again to announce is that not only does God love the world, but God loves the condemned in the world. God loves the condemned. So he didn't send Jesus, his son, the Messiah, in order to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. That seems like bad news. And so there must be at some point an awareness that awakens in the heart and the conscience by the Spirit of God that says, I am among the condemned. I am among those who have been bitten by this snake. And though I live in the moment, I will die. I, too, must look upon Jesus for salvation, for healing, for forgiveness. I, too, must come to Jesus, for he only is the one who holds the healing for my soul for my mind The writer of Hebrews would say that this Jesus who died is the one who makes it possible for us to worship him with a clear conscience. John would say of him later, he is the one who cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But we must recognize that we also stand among those who are condemned." This might have been a hard acknowledgement for Nicodemus. For the language that John goes in describing this event would be the language of criminality. Condemnation here refers in a legal way to a legal standing that one recognizes that I have come under judgment I have been assessed, perhaps according to the law, and now I had no my just penalty. I am condemned. And so a city manager who comes to a house that's had a fire is going to examine the house, and if that house cannot be lived in, it will be determined to be condemned, unlivable. I can't live here. And so if God himself comes to look and the house of your life and mind and heart and body and says, this house, I can't live in this house. It's condemned. And this is the assessment that Jesus didn't come to make because this assessment had already been done. This assessment had been made of humanity And yet, this broke God's heart. And so he moves in love because Jesus loves the condemned. Even upon the cross, Jesus loved the condemned. With two criminals, thieves who had been convicted of their crimes on either side of him, one made fun of Jesus and the other made life with Jesus. As he says, oh, Jesus, when you come into your paradise, and you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, this very day you shall be with me in paradise. Tim Mackey points out that the word paradise here is actually referenced to the word of garden. This very day you will be with me in the garden. Oh, Oh that from the cross Jesus would reference the garden, the Garden of even Eden, the very place where humanity had rebelled and sought to live independent of him and he says, "I'm going to take you back to the garden." Jesus himself stood among the condemned and was nailed on a cross among the condemned that he might bring salvation to the condemned because Jesus loves the condemned. Bob Eckblad had an incredible experience where he traveled to Toronto at a time of deep loneliness and despair. In ministry. While he was there, he visited at a, at a prayer ministry. And uh, he, he was invited, he said, All people who are ministers serving in churches, would you come forward uh, so that we can pray for you? And he was like, The last thing I wanted was at that moment for someone to pray for me. He says, I wanted to avoid that moment and he said there was one man making his way down the road praying for people and sometimes people fell over when they were being prayed for some people just sat down he's like that is not going to happen to me and when the man got in front of him he said um the lord has shown me something about you i've i've seen a picture of you with in a circle with people in orange suits, like jumpsuits. And the Lord wants you to know that he's very thankful that you love his prisoners. Does that mean anything to you? And Bob Bexblad said, oh yeah, that means something to me. And I think he probably took a step back. (laughs) He says, I go every week to the prison, and I have Bible study with the prisoners there. Oh. And the man said, well, now I'm going to pray for you. And so I prayed. And Bob experienced the power and the fullness of God's presence and spirit in that moment. Why? Because Jesus loves the prisoners. Jesus loves the condemned. Jesus loves any who feel captivated and blinded by their unknowingness of him. He loves them. Jesus loves all of those who have been carried off because of their sins and put into prison. He loves them. He loves those, too, who have acted righteous enough, just righteous enough not to end up in prison as well in this world. But who, because they have never looked up on him in faith, will share the same fate? Jesus loves the condemned. In John chapter 1, in introducing this whole experience of Jesus coming, John says. Because he's on a mission of love. A mission of love to love the whole world and to love the condemned. And in his love, he brings grace. Grace is that warmth of embrace and welcome. Freely. Freely. And truth is that piercing light That brings acknowledgement and recognition. The truth about me, the truth about God, the truth about our world, the truth about people. But that grace and truth also brings transformation. Notice verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is a vision of transformation. The transformation of those who have believed in Jesus and have received this grace and this truth ongoing in their lives, such that now they walk freely into the light. They may be able to say, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was racked by bitterness, but now I have joy. Once I had no self-control in my life, but now I have a measure of control that surprises even me. Now I know I'm loved, and that vision of love is transforming my life. And this is what Jesus does His love transforms people into kingdom citizens. The great work of the church is to help the redeemed know who they are in Christ. The great work of the church today for the church is to help each other know your identity in Christ so that we also could be known by the name of Jesus. People who know the name of Jesus become extraordinary lovers. They will do strange things in the name of Jesus. And Gordon tells the story of Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was a prisoner in Auschwitz in August 1941. A prisoner had escaped the camp, had tried to flee his condemnation, it was just unjust, truly. The Nazis who were running that camp ordered that ten prisoners must die by starvation. And so the ten men were counted out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And as they were being marched off, Father Kolbe calls out, And says, Let me take the place of one. Let me take their place. For two weeks, Father Colbe ministered to and led the men who were in that starvation bunker in song, in scripture, in encouragement. And finally, two weeks, the soldiers there even had had enough of him. And so they put him to death by lethal injection. He was condemned, was he? Or did he live like one who had real life? A survivor of Auschwitz described the effect of Kolbe's actions It was an enormous shock to the whole camp. We became aware that someone among us in this spiritual dark night of the soul was raising the standard of love. Someone unknown, like everyone else, tortured and bereft of name and social standing, went to a horrible death for the sake of someone not even related to him. Therefore, it is not true, we cried, that humanity is cast down and trampled in the mud, overcome by oppressors and overwhelmed by hopelessness. Thousands of prisoners were convinced the true world continued to exist and that our torturers would not be able to destroy it. To say that Father Colbe died for us or for that person's family is too great a simplification. His death was the salvation of thousands. We were stunned by his act, which became for us a mighty explosion of light in the dark camp. Oh, may Jesus be in you a mighty explosion of light. He loves you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we set our lives before you once again, and we pray that you would cause your love to rise up in us. Would you pour by your Holy Spirit your love in our lives so that we may know that we are truly your children. May you give courage today to the person who has been timid to call out, and surrender to you. May they look on you. Heavenly Father, may you give courage to the one who's held their fist up towards you and the cross. May they surrender to you today and yield so that they may be brought into your kingdom of light and life and know your love. O Lord, may we not waste the days of our lives. Instead, may we treasure every day as a gift from you because we experience the promise of your love. Though we wait for full healing, though we wait for this whole world to be restored and set in the brilliance of your kingdom. May you give us perseverance because we are loved by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. With those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, come now.